Hi Freaks, now in stereo. And if it's not in your good ear, just switch earbuds. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 98 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to remind you to go check out my Kickstarter campaign. It's a devchat.tv slash Kickstarter. Uh, it's a good way to support the shows, and if you like Rails, well, bonus for that. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Justin Spar Summers. Hey, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, so I am a desktop, primarily Mac developer at GitHub, um, and I've also worked on several open source projects like uh, Mantle, React Cocoa, Carthage, etc. Very cool. We got you on the show today to talk about Carthage. Do you want to kind of give a brief overview of what that is? Yeah, so Carthage is is our attempt to create a decentralized, simple dependency manager. So the goal is really kind of the simplest thing possible that builds frameworks and gives them to you. So it integrates with all the things you're familiar with um, and doesn't try to do a whole lot more than just the basic act of resolving some dependencies. So when I looked, went and looked at the README, it kind of was explaining what the difference was between CocoaPods and Carthage. So do they kind of do the same thing then, and what are the differences? So CocoaPods and Carthage, they solve kind of the same problem space, but in different ways and to different degrees. So both Carthage and CocoaPods are used to bring dependencies into your application or, or framework or whatever. Um, so if you have a library out there like you know Alamofire or whatever, and you want to bring it in, um, both Carthage and CocoaPods can do that. But they differ th- in their approach. So Carthage is very much, I'll bring this down for you, I'll build it, give it to you, and then get out of your way. Um, and CocoaPods is very much um, like helping you discover libraries and helping integrate them directly into your project um, if you want that. That's an option. And it's it's also centralized, which is kind of one of the key differences in the approaches. So CocoaPods has an official list of the libraries available, whereas Carthage just depends on Git repositories from wherever. So similar to CocoaPods, you're creating a Carthage file, a cart file. You're saying cart update. That brings down the source, builds it. Does that add it to your project? Are you ready to go at that point? Does it create a workspace? 
No, so all that would do is, like you said, it would bring down the dependencies. It would build them in their own projects, and then it would give you built binary frameworks. And then you can integrate those however you choose. You can just drag them into your Xcode project if you want, or maybe you're trying to just do like a binary distribution thing. Like you can upload those to a GitHub release or something like that. So it can really be used for any kind of... It really just gets you ready to go however you want to use them. What was your motivation? So you... You know, you started on this. Obviously, you knew CocoaPods was out there. You knew that there was sort of the manual way of doing things where you don't have a dependency manager at all. Um, what was your motivation for creating a new a new system that did have these sort of different goals and different design decisions compared to CocoaPods in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so for like historically, GitHub for Mac, which is the the primary code base that I work in day to day, has had what I've been calling um, excessively nested submodules. So we had like submodules with many levels of recursion even, and we were using Xcode subprojects to bring in our dependencies. But the problem is if you ever have like two dependencies that both share a dependency of their own. So in our case, we have like Mantle and Reactive Cocoa, and those are used by several other libraries that we've built. If those other libraries depend on incompatible versions of Mantle and Reactive Cocoa, you may not have any idea that that's happening with Git submodules because it doesn't really have that kind of version information built in. So Carthage was really our attempt to solve that specific problem by resolving versions across all our dependencies and giving us one compatible version for each thing. And as to why we haven't used CocoaPods, I mean, there are several reasons. Fundamentally, we kind of believe in the simplicity of what Carthage does. We think that like a simpler tool that kind of solves this exact problem and then gets out of our way is preferable to how we work. I mean, we're coming from a team of, you know, we know how to integrate dependencies. We know how to use Git submodules, like I mentioned. And so we really just wanted this one additional kind of edge case almost solved for us. And we didn't want to bring in this whole new world of dependency management that was really outside of, I guess, the scope of what we were trying to achieve. Um, and, and with regard to, like, the library author side of it as well, We've released several open source projects, like I mentioned, and we were kind of frustrated at the requirement to add like pod specs to all of our projects. Because from our point of view, you know, we're creating projects that vend frameworks. People can include them through Xcode and, and kind of the normal officially supported workflow. And all of the build information, all the information you need to incorporate it is right there in the project file. So why would we want to have this maintenance burden of duplicating that in this, in this kind of custom pod spec format? And so Carthage has made our lives as library authors easier, too, because we can solve this versioning problem while using standard machinery to do so. That's an interesting point that I, I hadn't actually considered. But as a library author myself, I certainly was quite impressed when I went to ins to add Carthage support. And I didn't actually have to do anything. I ran, I can't remember exactly, but I ran your command for checking that Carthage would work, and it just worked because I already had a framework project, and it found it, and it built it, and it was literally nothing to do. Whereas when I first added a a pod spec and tried to get my library into Cocoa Pods, it you know wasn't horrible, but it took some time, and I have to remember to update that every single time I push a new release. And so I do appreciate that. Well, great, I'm glad to hear it worked with without a uh, much yeah I don't know tinkering. So if I wanted to use your project, Andrew, what do I need to do? So you just I just realized it's out there, it's on GitHub, so I point Carthage to the project and it just grabs it and goes. You didn't have to do anything? Yeah, so I actually have uh, documentation to tell people how to install the library in various, or using various methods, because you know you can 
still use a submodule, or you can even, if you want, just include the source in your in your project. But for Carthage, it's really simple. You create a cart file, you add a line from iLibrary to your cart file, which is GitHub, and then the path to the project, and then you run Carthage update, and it builds the framework, and then you have this framework that Carthage puts in its build folder, and you drag the framework into your project, and then you add that like you would add any binary framework to Xcode. At that point, it's not Carthage doing anything for you, but um, it's really quite a simple process, simpler than CocoaPods, and it doesn't take over your, your Xcode project slash workspace. So just like Justin said. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, does this work with systems like RubyMotion or Xamarin? To be honest, I'm not sure. If those custom build tools can use binary frameworks, just arbitrary binary frameworks, then it should work flawlessly. But I, I haven't looked into it or tried. Yeah, I believe they can, so... Well, and I think from the library author's point of view, the only thing that the library needs to do is to have a framework project, which is just an Xcode project that, that builds a framework as its target. And it just needs to be able to, to build out of the box, right? Without, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe, maybe Carthage will, I'm, I'm assuming Carthage just runs Xcode build fundamentally, right? Yeah, pretty much. There, there are a few complications in there to actually like, discover which targets are frameworks and to avoid building any sub-projects that you might have. But the basic idea is, yeah, it just shells out to Xcode build. Okay, so a library author may have no idea what Carthage is, and we can still grab their stuff using Carthage. Yeah, generally that's the case. Um, there are some requirements that are not really because of Carthage, but just like anytime you want to do command line builds, like you need to share your schemes and stuff like that. But it's like if you have your project on a CI service, you would need to do that anyways. Yeah, and I guess the thing I would add to that is that frameworks, for iOS in particular, frameworks are new as of iOS 8, and so people have to have added a framework project, and it's maybe not as common to have done that in an iOS library as it would be in a Mac library where frameworks have been around forever, but hopefully that becomes more common. Can Carthage deal with static libraries? I don't. I guess I don't know the answer to that. No, that's that's a great point. It It can't, and that was kind of a deliberate design decision, because although static libraries are very common in iOS programming today, we were building this, you know, after iOS 8 had been released, and of course it doesn't have the great market penetration that everyone's hoping for yet, but it's kind of a forward-thinking approach, right? Like, we're hoping that more and more projects will just use frameworks by default, because soon enough there will be no reason not to. And then they offer several advantages as well, like you can bundle resources really easily. You can deal with like diamond dependencies really easily. So if like the example I was talking about, like if two libraries both depend on Reactive Cocoa, they can both dynamically link it, and then you only need one copy at runtime, and you avoid like duplicate symbol errors and what have you that you would get with static libraries. And it's interesting because this is kind of a long-standing problem that CocoaPods has been solving, um, because it ensures that only one copy of Reactive Cocoa in this example gets included as source, but also using binary frameworks and dynamic linking solves that same problem in a different way. I, I actually want to talk to you about the implementation of Carthage, but I, I want to make sure that sort of usage and design decision questions are all out of the way before we get into that, because I assume it's a somewhat deep topic. Yeah, I mean, I can I can go on at length about it. Um, I will say. Like one of the other major reasons we wanted to make this kind of simpler tool is not just for our own workflow, but kind of in, in line of with Unix philosophy and doing as little as possible in, in modular components that you can, you know, plug and play however you want. So we hope that like by making it so simple, by giving it so few responsibilities really, 
it becomes easier to integrate in larger, more custom, more edge casey workflows because it's it's easier to bit, like bend a simple tool to your will than to kind of bend a very complex opinionated tool to whatever you're trying to do. Is there a difference in using this tool in an iOS project versus a Mac project? Today, there is a difference. Unfortunately, there's a um, an App Store submission bug uh, for which a radar has been filed um, where you can't submit an iOS app to the App Store if it contains universal frameworks. So if the frameworks included in the bundle contain simulator and device slices, um, your submission will actually be rejected. In my opinion, they should either let it through or strip the symbols that are unnecessary or something like that. But as of today, that's a bug. So for iOS projects specifically, um, there's a build phase that we ask you to add, um, but it's hopefully not too burdensome. Okay, so we're adding a build phase to our Xcode project. Then what does that build phase do that, that runs the Carth- Carthage tool? Yeah, so this would be at the application project level. So this is, again, something that library authors don't need to worry about. But at the application project level, you're adding a build phase that's responsible for doing what I just described, like stripping out the simulator slices and all the frameworks that are going with your app to the App Store. So they have some automated system there that looks at it and rejects it before it gets to a reviewer? The reason I think it's a bug is because the errors are kind of cryptic and not really related to the actual problem. Like, it's complaining about the use of private symbols, which isn't really a problem. So it seems like it's just kind of an unintentional block. Has it been acknowledged by Apple as a bug? Uh, No, I haven't gotten any response on the radar, positive or negative. Okay, yeah, I I used Carthage on on a project, and we ran into the same thing. What are some patterns to keep this working? Like, say you have a build server. So now the build server needs to have Carthage. How do you handle this? Does everyone on your team have Carthage installed on their, their dev boxes? Yeah, so there, there are a few different ways. So our team certainly does, but one of the nice advantages of having you know just plain binary frameworks is that you don't necessarily need to do that if people are uncomfortable with it or you want it on CI or whatever. You could, for example, just check in the built binaries after they're done, just check that into your repository, and then it's kind of ready to go. You can just clone it and build it. You shouldn't need any special tooling. If you want, you can also use... Carthage to manage your Git submodules, so then it just becomes a plain Git problem almost. And we did that in the past before migrating to the current setup. So there, there are a few different ways to do it, um, and this is kind of in keeping with the philosophy of like, you know, it, it's simple, it stays out of your way, like you can depend on it or not, it's fine either way. I have a really important question. Why did you call it Carthage? <laughs> That's a great question. So Rob Ricks came up with that name. He said Carthage because it kind of sounds like package. And we can change it later. And if we ever did. <laughs> we could change it later. Famous last words, right? Yep. That was excellent. There's nothing more permanent than a temporary name. It worked out great for me because I am terrible at naming and it sounds vaguely cool. Yeah, I think it works. Yep. So if we're starting a new project and we have to add dependency management and we're sold on the idea that you should use some kind of dependency management, which not everyone's bought into, you know, Carthage, CocoaPods, are the two options. When would you use CocoaPods? When would you use Carthage? And can you use both? You can absolutely use both. And I mean, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but from my perspective, one of the great things about Carthage is that in order to add, quote, Carthage support, really you're just adding an Xcode project and a framework target, which is something that, you know, people who are including it manually will probably want anyways. So one of the great benefits of releasing Carthage has actually been that more and more projects are including just regular old framework targets. 
So it's kind of had this like externality benefit sort of thing where projects are just getting better configured in the first place. And then if you want to add CocoaPod support on top of that, super easy. Just add a pod spec next to your Xcode project and you can have both in parallel. I'm not sure I, I followed that giving a real good answer to James' question. You know, when, when do you pick one over the other? In my opinion, it really just comes down to which you personally prefer. There are advantages to CocoaPods, um, unique advantages. Like, it makes discovering libraries easier because there's, you know, the main CocoaPods repository and list of packages. It also comes with tools like CocoDocs for automatically generating documentation and, and hosting it. But if you're looking for the least amount of effort that you as a library author have to do, for me, that would be Carthage. That would be a plain Xcode project rather than, you know, dealing with the pod spec format and submitting it and everything. So it really comes down to, you know, do you want to be in the CocoaPods ecosystem or do you just want to, like, put something out there and make sure people can include it? Can you include Objective-C projects in Carthage? Yeah, works with Objective-C or Swift. Okay. Jam, I haven't used it. I've only used it with Objective-C. What is this Swift business? What is it? I think, um, I think, I, I think I, it's I, still I, under the A. We can't talk about it, right? Yeah, right. Well, that actually is a pretty good segue into something I wanted to ask about, which is that Carthage itself, the tool itself, is implemented in Swift, right, Justin? Yep, 100%. And I'm curious to know how that's gone, because I think this is actually a pretty... I mean, Swift's been out long enough now that there are plenty of apps that are using it and people that have done fairly big projects in it and stuff, but Carthage seems like one of the first big open source projects that's actually getting traction that's all written in Swift, and so I'm first curious to know a little bit about your experience using Swift. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly encountered our share of bugs. I think one of the interesting benefits, if I can call it a benefit, is that, you know, kind of going all in with Swift has forced us to find workarounds for, like, common bugs, um, has helped us, like, gain an understanding of what the compiler means when it gives you a cryptic type error. So in that sense, it's kind of equipped us with tools to start using Swift on other projects and know how to work around these these things that might otherwise be blockers. But as far as like the positives of using it, it's just been excellent. I mean, I think it's allowed us to develop Carthage a lot more quickly than we would be able to in Objective-C, and we get the benefits of like value types and parameterized types, which has been huge with our use of Reactive Cocoa, because in Objective-C, everything's just rack signal and you have no idea what it does in Carthage you get to see oh this is a signal of projects this is a signal of build phases or, or whatever the case may be so overall I think it's increased clarity a lot increased the stability and safety of the Carthage code and yeah I don't know it's it's definitely introduced a share of bugs but probably not as many as you would see in a GUI application are you still for the main development branch I assume you're still using Swift 1.1 and not the beta 1.2 is that true that is correct, um, and it's because of uh, Carthage's dependencies. Um, so Reactive Cocoa is, I think it just finished getting upgraded to Swift 1.2, and until that happened, it was impossible to upgrade Carthage because you can't mix the Swift versions. So now that that's happened, there's a work-in-progress branch to upgrade Carthage as well. Ah, cool. So I, I'm kind of curious to know about challenges that you've encountered, not with Swift, but in writing Carthage. I know that the people who, who have worked on and written CocoaPods have plenty of stories to tell about reverse engineering Xcode's project and workspace files and you know working around all kinds of odd behavior and edge cases in related to having to write Xcode projects. And, and of course, they have the Xcode proj gem that they use. And I, Anyway, are there things along those lines that you've run into that are interesting that you've had to solve in working on Carthage? 
Yeah, so not not nearly as many as CocoaPods because we avoid you know project writing and, and direct project reading. Like our entire interface to Xcode is through Xcode Build, um, but we've definitely encountered a few bugs in Xcode Build itself. Like there are cases where um, the Xcode Build dash list command will just hang indefinitely. Like it'll print out its output and then never finish, which is bizarre. Um, and then. Separate from Xcode, even, there are some kind of Git oddities because Carthage does use Git to pull down dependencies and check them out. And it's like, I don't know, like checking out a repository that has submodules, but making sure that it's not checked out as a submodule itself is kind of a tricky problem. We figured out a workaround for it. But there are a lot of like interesting quirks like that, I suppose. To be honest, I think the biggest kind of abstract challenge or technical challenge almost has been the dependency resolving itself because it's it's very interesting and difficult to create a dependency resolver that is decentralized. Because whereas tools like CocoaPods or RubyGems or, or whatever other package manager, they have lists of every project and every version that is available for every project. Carthage actually has to find that information out on the fly by going to the Git repository and seeing like, okay, what are the tags available? Okay, go into this tag, see what dependencies it uses on that tag, and so on and so forth. So it's very crazy. So this requires access to the Git repository. What if you're working with a private repository, something you're doing in-house, an in-house framework? Is that an option with Carthage? Yeah, absolutely. So it'll just use whatever Git credentials you have saved on the command line. And it does that through a standard Git command known as Git credential. And I think the thing James is also getting at is that your library repositories do not have to be GitHub repositories. They can in your cart file you can just give the complete um, URL for the Git repository on any server, including a local server, or I assume even a local repository that's on the local machine, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry for missing that. Yeah, so you can do that if you, you're talking about GitHub Enterprise specifically. There's no kind of first-class support for it, but that is something we have an issue filed for. And the first-class support would just mean the ability to download binaries instead of source when available. Okay, so if you can, you can reach the repository, you can add it. That's very cool. Yeah, pretty much. Is there any any plan or any thought that you might add support for other version control systems? The reason I ask is because at my day job, we use Mercurial for everything, and so that keeps us from using Carthage. To be honest, we haven't put a lot of thought into it I think like the simplicity of Carthage, including its implementation, is one of the huge advantages of it. And every different thing that we want to support does add some kind of complexity. And so it's really always a case of weighing the complexity against what we would gain. With Mercurial, it's a little tough because there are so many like Git Mercurial bridges that I don't know if it would be worth it. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It's something we would have to consider more, I think. I think we actually probably could use it. We do our hosting on Kiln, and they have a feature called Kiln Harmony where repositories can be accessed using either Git or Mercurial semi-seamlessly. I mean, there are actually some pretty serious problems with that related to sub-repos, but for something like a library project, should work just fine. Awesome. So yeah. Yeah, I, I ought to try that. With, so we, we also use internal libraries very extensively. Sure. Speaking, you, you were saying that you, you were trying to keep things simple and everything you add adds some complexity, and I very much appreciate that, and I, I actually admire that that's one of your sort of guiding principles in, in working on Carthage, but I am curious to know what the future is. I know development on Carthage has been really active. I first found it several months ago, and I know it's a whole lot of stuff, and a lot of commits have made it into the repository since then, so I'm I kind of am curious what the future for Carthage is. What is it that you're, you're still working on and planning to add, and that kind of thing? 
so it's funny you should ask this because I actually gave a, a lightning talk at GitHub very recently about how to like start an open source project. And one of the, the tenets that I brought up was plan your 1.0. Figure out what 1.0 means, what your minimum kind of viable product for 1.0 could be, and set up milestones to get you there. And so that's really been the goal with Carthage from the beginning is like, we want to get to 1.0 because, I don't know, in my mind, it's not really real until there's a 1.0 release. Um, people are using it, which is excellent, but I want it to be a real thing. I want it to be stable. I want it to be dependable. So to answer your question, we have a few things remaining before we hit 1.0. The primary one is the ability to like save command line flags per project almost. So right now, you can use Carthage in a way where it checks out submodules for you, or you know, you tell Carthage you don't want it to build the frameworks automatically. Like you just want to check them out, and then you'll integrate them however you want instead of using the binaries feature. So settings like that are annoying to specify every time on the command line. People on your project may not know that they need to specify them, and you run into like I don't know, just annoyances. So one of the features we're trying to add is a syntax to the cart file that allows you to specify these kind of flags just for the, the application project. So like in your application project, you could say, yes, I want to always use submodules and just put that into the configuration file. After that, there might be like one or two other issues, but that's really kind of the big remaining thing before 1.0 is ready to go. And then of course, we want to review the APIs that we're exposing to make sure that those are good for a 1.0 release because it's not just Carthage the application, but also Carthage Kit, the framework. I, don't, I guess I don't know how big that job is, but it actually sounds then like you're getting close-ish to 1.0. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's the hope. I mean, so we're the, the per-project settings thing that I mentioned is going to be 0.7, our version 0.7. And after that, we're aiming for 1.0. I mean, something might come up, we may need to do another intermediate release, but it should be 0.7, 1.0 as it stands right now. And the only difference between those two is kind of that API review that I mentioned and fixing any last minute bugs and that sort of thing. Cool. Uh, what about, I, this gets really hard, I know, for any project, but what about farther into the future? What's Carthage 2.0 going to be like? Yeah, I, I'll be honest, I haven't thought about it too much because, I mean, since its inception, I've had the idea of what 1.0 is in my head. I think it's kind of funny question because I almost feel like if you know what 2.0 is, that should just be your first major version instead. Because to me, every major version is the opportunity to make breaking changes where you realize you made mistakes the first time around. Like this is what every successive release of Reactive Cocoa has been, honestly. It's like, you know, we put out 1.0, we were using it in practice for a while, and then it's like, oh, these are all, there's all these problems, but we can't break backwards compatibility. Let's do 2.0. I don't know what the comparable example for Carthage would be, but anything that we're realizing ahead of time is going to be this kind of breaking change problem, we're just going to try to fix in 1.0 instead. And as far as feature set, I really don't have many goals for features beyond what Carthage offers today. I mean, there are enhancements in the backlog, but I don't know that there's anything of a comparable scope to the 1.0 release. Yeah, those are, the, those are the type of things that come out when people start using it in large numbers. Like, oh, we like this case. This doesn't do this. They can kind of refactor your approach and bump your versions. It's hard to have the crystal ball to look that far forward. Yeah, absolutely. In some sense, I think if we never need a 2.0 release, we've succeeded. Now, I don't think that's likely, but that would be kind of my ideal. <laughs> so I guess the other question I have, and this is something I see with a lot of open source software, is they get something out there, they get something that works, 
and then you know some small subset of the community adopts but you know reaching the wider community and helping them understand you know how this can help them out is kind of hard are, are there specific things that you're doing with Carthage to get the word out other than coming on podcasts I guess <laughs> well, I will also be giving a talk at the Swift Language User Group in SF on the 2nd of April, I think. Kind of just about the philosophy and some of the stuff we've been talking about. But to your larger point, I think a lot of the evangelism is kind of going to wait until after 1.0. Because, I don't know, I've found in the past that going out and explaining something that isn't actually, quote, released yet. I don't know. There are people in the audience that are like, oh, well, that sounds awesome, but I'll wait for 1.0 or what have you. So after 1.0, I think we can definitely devote more time to making sure that there's good material out there, maybe a good website, doing more talks and that sort of thing. This is actually, uh, incidentally, one of the other things I mentioned in my Lightning talk is that, you know, when you're starting an open source project, there are a lot of things that you want. Like you want, you know, a great marketing website. You want great documentation besides what's just available in the code or the man page or whatever. But all of that stuff can wait, really. Like, you can do a 1.0 release, and then you can add all of that, and it's fine. Like, you don't need to do a breaking version or anything like that. Um, in my opinion, it's really about getting to 1.0 as quickly as possible without cutting any corners, and then, you know, adding all that on top as a nice bonus. It's good to have an endpoint. A lot of projects are never official. Yeah. I've never gotten to 1.0 and still widely used, but it's good to draw a line in the sand and just do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, it's very similar to shipping an app. Like at some point you'd have to decide what your scope is. And I mean, as, as programmers, we're all familiar with the problem of scope creep. Um, and we really wanted to avoid that from the start with Carthage. So it's been very defined. Yeah, I think you've done a good job. I actually opened an issue quite a while ago about a, an enhancement, and you said, well, we're not going to do that. And you know, in one sense, I was a little disappointed because I would have liked the enhancement, but I actually think it's a, a good thing that you're keeping things simple and actively trying to avoid scope creep. CocoaPods is not at version 1.0, and it's been around for a long time, and I don't think a lot of people even realize that it's still pre-release. Yeah, and that's definitely... I've actually seen the CocoaPods contributors kind of express a little bit of concern about that too, because it's like, you know, if 1.0 of CocoaPods kind of breaks all the expectations that users have today, people are going to be really upset and not realize that it was this kind of pre-release version. Thanks for the, the praise, by the way, and sorry about your issue. I don't remember exactly which one it was, but oh, I hope it, was, it was justified. Yeah, I was being able to put the output of Carthage in a in a in a different folder than Carthage.build, so that you could, uh, for example, put it in some framework folder that you were already using in your project. But it's really not a big deal. Cool. <laughs> so with Carthage, so this is developed in Swift. So you're creating a, a binary that lives on your machine. Is there any concept of having different versions of Carthage when that day comes with CocoaPods? You can do that by managing the Ruby environments, things like that. RVM. Is there any thought to how you can do that in the case where one project is relying on an older version of Carthage? So, I mean, our hope should be that everything is forward compatible. And so far, that's been like 90% true. Because, I mean, the format, or the cart file format, for example, is so very simple. It doesn't really do much at all. Like, it's very easy for us to maintain compatibility with that going forward. And so there shouldn't be any ill effect from using a newer version of Carthage. Now, the one exception to this so far has been around version 0 
we changed the structure of Carthage projects on disk, but it included like an automatic migration and stuff. So this was kind of like, you know, this one breaking change that we decided was really important to make before 1.0. And so we just did it. But especially after 1.0, that sort of stuff won't happen. And so it'll just be forward compatible and the latest version should just work. Yeah, this is the benefit of the simple approach with CocoaPods. It's so invasive what you're doing to the project in the workspace that different versions just don't play well together. Yeah, that makes sense. So I had a question about the reactive cocoa. So this is all done using the reactive cocoa extensions. I was yep. in San Francisco last year for DubDub, and you held the kind of the reactive cocoa conf at about the same time. So I, I was there right after Swift was announced, and you know at that point you weren't really sure what direction you're going to take, but you have gone and you have created the reactive cocoa in Swift. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, that's happened. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny because Carthage was, in some sense, I mean, this wasn't why it was created, but a big part in the technology choices made in Carthage is that it's a great test bed for a Reactive Cocoa Swift API. Because, you know, we can't go in and refactor all of GitHub for Mac tomorrow to see if the Swift API is worth using. So Carthage being on that Swift API before it's been released has been really helpful in terms of determining what works, what doesn't, and it's helping us get to Reactive Cocoa 3.0 a lot faster. Yeah, very cool. Anything else we should talk about before we go to picks? All Thank right. you for all the questions. Definitely. Andrew, what are your picks? Got two picks today. Uh, my first is a competing podcast. No, it's not really competing, but it's a new podcast that's called Welcome to Macintosh. And it's by a guy named Mark Bramhill, and he has been, he's only, it's only two episodes in so far, but going by the two episodes that, he's done so far it's sort of a historically focused podcast about apple the first episode was about the like pre-ios 7 ui design in ios and how that was really actually tied to steve jobs and it was quite interesting and, and then the newest episode as of this recording which is episode two is is all about ios development before the app store came out so it's called sweet solution it's pretty good it's got interviews with nevin bergen and Craig Hockenberry, and I just love this historical stuff, and he's doing a good job with it. So that's Welcome to Macintosh, and it's Macintosh.fm. My second pick is some beef jerky that I've been enjoying lately. So I, I was in Massachusetts, I don't know, six months ago, and found this in a store there, and I really liked it. So I found their website and ordered a bunch of it, and it's called the Appalachian Jerky Company. The reason I like it is because they don't use a bunch of extra sugar, and I get really tired of food that shouldn't have a ton of sugar in it, having a ton of sugar in it. So it's good, non-sweet jerky, and they'll ship it anywhere. So it's Appalachian Jerky Company. Those are my picks. All right, James, what are your picks? You know, I've just decided that everything is terrible. I don't have any picks. I'm just going to think about Andrew's beef jerky. That sounds delicious. Everything <laughs> is awful. All right. I've been uh, listening to a bunch of books lately, so I'll just share some of those. I just finished book three of the Earthsea books by Ursula K. Le Guin. And I, I really enjoyed that. It's called The Farthest Shore. The first one's called The Wizard of Earthsea. They're kind of early on fantasy books, but they're pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I've been enjoying that. And then I'm also going to pick a book called Traction. And it's a book, if you're trying to get adoption of different things, uh, it talks about different strategies and things that you can use to gain adoption or build your business or whatever. So those are my picks. Justin, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick. Uh, it's actually a project of a friend of mine, Josh Abernathy, who helped create or basically started Reactive Cocoa, actually. 
So he's started a project now called Few.Swift, which is a Swift implementation of the principles behind Facebook's React Native. So it's all about treating views as pure functions of their state. So you can kind of like describe your UI ahead of time, do like functional transformations over it, and then some later point that gets converted into UI view or NS view or whatever. Um, it's really cool. It's very much in development right now, so not necessarily ready for production use, but definitely worth a look, and I'll be keeping a very close eye on it as it develops further. That looks cool. I hadn't heard about that yet. Definitely have to check it out. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's, it's an awesome principle. I'm not too excited about React Native just because of the JavaScript thing, and I realize that you know JavaScript is just the implementation language and the concepts are what it, what's important and all that, but you know I'd really rather not have to actually work in JavaScript, so... Swift sounds cool. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Justin. It was fun to talk, and uh, hopefully some folks can uh, find Carthage and get some good use out of it. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. If people want to learn more about the project or about you, what are the best ways to do that? So the, the primary way right now is the Carthage repository on GitHub, but I've also written like a couple of Quora answers just explaining you know, some of the philosophy behind Carthage and maybe how you would use it. Yeah, but other than that, if just on Twitter at jsparsummers, it's a great way to get in touch, too. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, yep. thank you. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 